Lord God, as we um, consider a very small local problem in the life of the church in Ephesus, we pray that we may, behind it, see the work and the grace and the mercy and the love of he who is the one true God, of whom we've been singing and whose purposes we're here to serve. Open our eyes and our minds and our hearts that we may behold Christ in his word and beholding him may know our lives changed. Amen. Uh, Allah Akbar. God is great. The first cry that goes up from the imam at the call to prayer. <clears throat> it's always important to register, of course, that the word Allah is simply the Arabic word for God. If a Christian Palestinian prays to God, uh, he calls him Allah. It's not a, a Muslim God. It's not a, uh, a special name for God. It just means God is great. The Muslims, Islam, has still got that basic point. Wrong on all other kinds of, lots of other things, yes. But they've got that. We, on the other hand, may be in danger of abandoning it. Not yesterday, but last Saturday morning, I listened to an interview on the radio with Lord Carey, former Archbishop of Canterbury. And it was after the ruling from uh, Biddeford in Devon that there was no legal provision for prayers to be said in public session of the council there. And like many of us, George Carey didn't like what he'd heard of the ruling. But he objected to it on the grounds that Christianity was a minority faith that needed protecting. I listened to it again this evening, just, this morning, just to check. It was a six-minute interview, and on six separate occasions the interviewer put to George Carey the question in terms of, yes, but faith is okay in private. You can't expect it to be a public matter, can you? And only once did George Carey pick up on that language. The overall effect left in place the idea that the practice of faith is okay if it's private, but illegitimate if it's public. And what frustrated me was that it went unchallenged time and again. St. Paul writes in the letter to the Ephesian church that God acts, quote, through the church so that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Well, that's about as big and public an activity by the church as you could imagine. Now, in one way, the issue that's in front of us today from 1 Timothy, it's a tiny one. It's very local to the Ephesian church where Timothy is working. It's about how widows should behave, given that they've got a particular role to play in that church. There's perhaps a few general principles we can draw out, but I hope we can see with the sort of concerns that Paul is expressing how we can have much more confidence in the public square and how we can actually address this nonsense that faith is somehow private only. We're going to be mostly in chapter 5. It's on page 1193, as Christine said. And it opens with a reminder that church is like a family. Don't rebuke an older man harshly 
but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. And then we hit the section, verses 3 through to 16, with two concerns. The first is what we might call care for the real widows. In Acts 6, there's a dispute about fair allocations in the financial distribution that's going on within the church for those in need. The language of repaying in verse 4 here makes it clear that there's a group of widows being supported at the church's expense now that their husbands are dead. And it's important that limited resources are used properly, so Paul is setting out for Timothy the criteria for the support of these women in real need. Firstly, they should be really in need. Verses 3 and 5. The church should support those who haven't got children or grandchildren to do it for them. Fifth commandment, honour your father and mother. And it was common to interpret it as meaning, at least in this sense, that as they've supported children in the past, so children, when they grow up, should support them in later life. And it was clearly a very major issue. Remember that Jesus said, if you love only those who love you, you've done no better than a pagan or a tax collector would do. The standards in the world around the church were already that families looked after their own, their elderly. So if a Christian is not looking after family, then according to verse 8 here, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. His standards have dropped below even the standards that the unbelieving world would expect. And his actions deny the faith that his lips express. So, consider those in genuine need. And if they're a family that should be supporting them, we'll kick those, that family up the backside until they get on with the, the proper job. Secondly, they must be over 60 according to verse 9. And they must have then also a record of good deeds. They must have been faithful to their husbands. We'll come back to that. They must have looked after their families in childcare. They must have been hospitable. They must have been engaged in service. Verse 10. And now, from a little earlier on in verse 5, they should be earnestly committed uh, to their prayers. Well, you can see why he might do that. Limited resources, so let's set out who gets what. But, earlier in the letter, Paul had talked about qualifications for church leadership, and it's all very instructive. But it's all the more instructive because he's doing it against a background of an attack on the quality of church leadership. And there's a background threat around greed in the issue of leadership. There are those who are fussing about the wrong things, talking nonsense and speculations and enjoying just wittering, really, while not caring about the right things, modelling the true faith to the world around. Now, the same kind of thing is going on in here. Paul's expressing concern about those he calls the real widows because he's aware of a threat from those he's calling the younger widows. Possible, of course, that there'll be those in our congregation who are in that situation. So do remember that this is all about Ephesus. It's not yet about Norwich. But if the first issue was care for the real widows, 
The second is curb the younger widows. See, there are younger widows, and stories are coming in from Ephesus to Paul. They're misbehaving. They want a continuing sex life, according to verse 11, and so they want to remarry. Well, in itself, there's nothing wrong with that. Indeed, in verse 14, uh, Paul will advise them to marry again. But what they're contemplating is a remarriage that's outside the faith. Their desires are stronger, according to verse 11, than their dedication to Christ. Or again, in verse 12, they are breaking their first pledge. And the word for pledge there is also the word for faith. Their first commitment to the faith that is in Christ. Well, that's pretty bad. But worse, though, is that these younger widows are busy in being idle. They go from house to house, according to verse 13, talking nonsense and the things that should not be saying, things they ought not to. Well, it's, it's almost that. It's not quite that. Actually, what it says is, things that should not be said. It sounds pretty much the same. But things they ought not to could be just about something that applied to them. And in fact, what Paul says is, things that shouldn't be said by anyone. This, this shouldn't be happening, what's going on. Well, there's a reason for that. It suggests a link with those false teachers who've occupied us so much in 1 Timothy, if you've been here. And it looks, to sum it all up, as though there are women who have private means, who are still, because they're widows, getting, uh, on top of that, some support from the church. Uh, They're capable of of, uh, dressing up to go to church. We heard about that very early on. They're perhaps used to a pagan society in which women had an honored place, in running religion, that was special to Ephesus, as we looked at in chapter 2. And they're now getting themselves involved in moving from house to house, because, of course, it, in a, it was a relatively separated culture. Men and women met separately, so women would go and visit other women in their houses. And they were spouting the nonsense that the false teachers were saying to the men in the public church teaching. And so it's vital that Paul addresses just as much the domestic environment as the public one, given that women occupied that kind of uh, role apart. False teaching could spread from house to house via the women just as much as it could spread uh, from the church assembly uh, through the men. These are women then, according to verse 6 of uh, chapter 5, live for pleasure. They look lively on the outside, but they're dead inside. Well, that's really the the thrust of the passage. Care for the real widows, curb the younger widows. And it does have a few things to tell us about widows and remarriage. The first is to go back to verses 1 and 2, where we're told that relationships in the public assembly of the gathered church, like what we are, they're in fact to be patterned on the family in which fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers are all rightly honoured. Now, it may only have met uh, the church in Ephesus in, in uh, 
uh, house churches. They'd have been a lot bigger than we would get into one of our houses, admittedly. But it was still a public assembly. Public assembly patterned on domestic relationships. Now, some of you will be familiar with African churches, and African churches do this much better generally than we do. All around you now. This is your family. And older women no less than others. Just as the ancient world ignored those who were past the age of child-rearing, we can ignore those socially who are past making an economic contribution to society. But we can't ignore the relationships in which we've been set. So it's still the case that we learn from verses 1 and 2. Honor is still due, even if we don't have lists for financial support. Well, sometimes we do. There is a small charity attached to our church, and the Christmas distribution does tend to be dominated by widows, because not that much has changed since Paul wrote. So that's the first thing, the relationship. Secondly, it's all too easy to say the state will look after us, or that the state looks after our parents. Who knows how much longer that'll be the case. Maybe we'll look back on the second half of the 20th century and say it was a golden age in social provision. Honor your father and mother isn't abolished because Jesus has come. That old commandment, it's one that's taken up, it's enhanced. That is still a primary obligation to honor our own parents. And then beyond that, there's a provision to make through the church for our mothers and fathers in the church. And then thirdly, there is something to be said for heeding Paul's warning about marriage. Here it's remarriage outside the faith. Sometimes that happens for reasons we'd have to say are quite understandable. There's a life to be lived and it seems uh, great that there's a man to share it with. Women have always lived longer. There would have been then, in those times, more women looking for such a marriage than there were Christian men to meet the demand. That seems to me a parallel to the case of single women today. It's to our shame as men that we've done such a rubbish job of evangelizing other men that it's still the case that there are more Christian women than Christian men to marry. Paul's response, though, to to that very understandable pressure, it's very robust. Do not break your first pledge. Now, of course, even Paul recognized qualifications on that. What of a couple in which, uh, unbelieving couple, in which one becomes a Christian? He says elsewhere, don't divorce, even if you then end up with a marriage in which there's one believer and one who isn't. And perhaps that's true in partnerships of living together today. Where there's already children, don't split up. Paul recognizes that the family unit has a value that's to be set alongside the faith and unfaith issue. Nonetheless, if you're entirely free of other obligations, Paul says, Paul says, don't go near it. It will lead you away. And that's very far away to the realm where the God in charge is not the one we know, as he says in verse 15. First, honor our seniors. Second, honor your own parents. And thirdly, beware marriage outside the faith. And yet that's not all that we can say. 
because this is an excellent passage to take in our hands as we meet that guy who was interviewing George Carey. And what matters is that that interviewer speaks for all kinds of people that you have almost certainly met who think that you can believe what you like so long as you keep it private. And my fear is that we are collectively giving in to that thought far too easily, accepting a defensive posture that doesn't make a fuss, asking to be protected because we're a minority. So long as they they are, allow us to practice faith in private. The world around us has a doctrine of a very low church, but St. Paul is incredibly high church. How has he ended chapter 4? Watch your life and doctrine closely so as to save yourself and your hearers. And he says that, having already said in chapter 3 and verse 15, that the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. You cannot get a higher doctrine of the church than St. Paul has. The good news of this book, this letter to Timothy, is that God became man in Jesus Christ, bore our sins on the cross, was raised to glory, and is proclaimed among the nations as the answer to our woes. That truth That doctrine, and I remember uh, that notice uh, from Mark, God forbid that doctrine like that should ever be boring. That truth, that doctrine, is to be guarded and lived out supremely in and through the church. The word Paul uses normally for the church is, is the word ecclesia, and it's any kind of public assembly. The emphasis is that it was public. People came to it called from all over to attend a public meeting. On the one hand, the church is to pattern itself on the private family, beginning of chapter 5. But on the other hand, the family of the church is to go on and have a public impact on public life and society as we look after widows, as we bear witness together to a different life founded on the truth. What kind of faith would it be that didn't touch on the public realm? By definition, it could only be a faith in a deity who made no difference. It's a completely 18th century kind of nonsense and we should have left it there, but it seems to keep coming back. No BBC interviewer and no colleague at work or sceptic at college or among our friends should be allowed to get away with such a cheap and absurd shot, let alone six times. If there are a million children being trafficked into slavery, and if we have among us, as we do in Andy, one of those who, as a Christian, is taking his faith into the public realm and doing something about it, do we say to him, actually, I'm afraid you've completely missed the point. You really should just stay private about the whole business. Of course we don't say that, because we believe in the one true God. You are a great God. We believe in a God who who wants to do something about that, and he will do it as those who are the church, the public assembly, get it about the relationships among them and want others to have it and therefore care when it is abused. I was delighted to hear a little while ago of one of our small groups, not just meeting in private, but getting involved in a a, a Besom project 
to improve someone's life. Or another, some while ago, another small group, which got stuck into the work of the Norwich street pastors. Of course, of course it all begins in private. No public assembly can turn your heart to follow Jesus Christ. Only I can do that for me, and you can do it for you. Only you can make that turn to say, I repent of my sins and I follow Jesus Christ. Of course it begins there. But it's utter madness to suppose that such a turning doesn't involve every single department of life, our friendships, our sense of family, our service of the saints, our hospitality, as it says here, our witness. We do not need protecting. Such should be our impact that the world is begging to be protected from us. At least that's how it should be. Because I also heard another interview last week with the actor James Corden on Desert Island Discs. And he was grateful for the stability offered to him in his home growing up as they all attended the Salvation Army week by week. And there's much that he looks back and appreciates about it. But he looked back on that community and said they were incredibly insular. They didn't really want anyone else to join them. They were fundamentally mean-spirited. So perhaps that BBC interviewer could say what he said to George Carey in the questions that he asked, not because it was a feeble leftover from the 18th century, but because it was his experience too of the church of the living God. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's pray. Allah God is great. Lord God, we have come to know you as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you are the one true God, a great God, who through the church is making himself known to the rulers and authorities, even in the heavenly realms. Lord, the world may believe its nonsense, but please defend us from giving in to it. Please give us new confidence that a faith that begins in the heart and mind and soul of each one of us is like by some mighty gearing of your Holy Spirit turned into a church that changes the world and lets those know it if they will open their eyes, see that there is uh, a God who makes a difference in the public realm and with whom, therefore, we have to do. We do pray again for those who, uh, after the work of Friends International, may be going back to countries where they don't know there's a church, where they don't know whether, if there is a church, they can be part of it, who are going to face a lonely time. And we ask a special blessing upon them. 
but for ourselves as we gather. We pray that we may use this extraordinary family that you have given us in blessing. And by your grace, may the church of God continue as a mighty witness to the public truth of the one true God among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.